Far in the north of Europe, not quite Scandinavia, are three gorgeous little countries that most Americans know very little about, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Today, we're going to Estonia. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Neil Taylor on the phone from London. Neil's the author of The Brat Guide to Estonia and The Brat Guide to Tallinn. And in my studio is Annelie Avator, who is an Estonian woman who came to the United States a while ago and goes back routinely to her hometown in her home country. Neil, thanks for being on the phone with us. Good, happy to join you. And Annelie, how do you say a good day in Estonian? Dere with dere bavast. Here we go, dere bavast. Hello, Neil. Hello, Annelie. How are you? Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. I've heard a lot about you. Oh, Where did you grow? Your family are from which part of Estonia? Actually, I was born in Tallinn, so I'm, I'm a city girl. I love the old town and all of that, so I'm, I'm really from the city. But um, <laughs> Hey, um, Neil, tell me how you became an expert on Estonia and just a little bit about your work. I was a tour operator in Britain for most of my life, and the company I ran specialized in what was then the communist world, so we had tours to the Soviet Union, but sadly at that time it wasn't possible to visit the Baltic countries, so most of our work was with Leningrad and Moscow. As soon as they became independent again in 1991, I thought this was a tremendous opportunity to show very Western countries to people in Britain who'd been denied access for 40, 50 years. So my first visit was in May 1992. I took my first group in September 1992 and have been closely involved in the area ever since. I didn't realize that during the uh, Soviet Union times, there was no tourism from the West in the Baltic states. Is that what you said? Hardly. It was a very rigid itinerary. You could start in Leningrad, take an overnight train to Tallinn, overnight train to Riga, overnight train to Vilnius, train back to Moscow, and then out. But not a serious visit right. to the area. And once the uh, Soviet Union broke up, I think the five most interesting and entertaining and accessible and comfortable towns for tourists may well be the three Baltic capitals, St. Petersburg and Moscow. Well, of course, now there's such a difference between St. Petersburg and Moscow. You've got the visa difficulties there. You've got the higher prices, and you've got a pretty rigid border between NATO and Russia nowadays. So one has to talk about Estonia in particular as being a very Western country. And traveling up to the Russian border, as I often do, reminds me so much of traveling in Germany 20 years ago and looking across the Berlin Wall or the border that separated East and West Germany. So, yeah, we need to remember that Estonia is part of the European Union now since, what, 2004? That's right, yes. And they're well on the way to having the euro. So The uh, euro is going to come there, Western credit cards. The moment you land at Tallinn Airport, you feel you are in a Western European country. You can easily forget that it was part of the Soviet Union for so long. Well, closed off as they were throughout the Cold War, they got TV from Finland, so they really knew what capitalism looked like, and it seemed to me they were able to put it back together after this 50-year bad dream of communism. That's right. The television was invaluable because it could be received in most of the country. So night after night, they could see the television and understand it because Finnish is very close to Estonian. So there wasn't any problem for people understanding all the domestic Finnish programs and realizing what they were missing, what could have happened to their country if it hadn't been occupied by the Soviet Union in 1945. And we have Annelie Avator in our studio. Annelie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you grew up in Estonia, and you came to the United States um, as soon as the country was free. Tell us about your story, basically, how you got here. Well, I was born in Tallinn. That's the capital of Estonia. Um, did grow up during the so-called deep Soviet times. The education was free, but um, I would say no matter what, or the Soviet times, 
we did get a good education. That was one of the good things that came out of that. So I do actually appreciate that part a lot. But the rest was, um, I would say, the people were living kind of somewhat depressed lives. They were not really able to do a lot. They were not able to travel. You could hardly get out of the country. You needed visas to get out of the countries. People would just educate themselves a lot, read, you know, go to concerts. They are very knowledgeable when you talk to Estonians about the other cultures. Even about the West. Even about the West. So, yeah, because I had friends um, in the Warsaw Pact countries that knew London mm-hmm. as if they had been there. Yes. But they really had yes. no hope of going there. Yeah, you're right. And that's exactly the way it was with Estonians. So when I go back now, I'm so excited to see how people travel now. They just take advantage of every travel opportunity. So Estonians like to travel because they, they, were, they were pent up birds. Because for they so could long. never do it in the past. So it's just a big thing. You can, you know, meet somebody and say, oh, I'm going to London. Oh, I'm going to this and that. So I just love that part, just the freedom, you know, or the capitalist system and the freedom that we have now. Now, that's just wonderful compared to the old Soviet times. That is such a beautiful thing. I always feel like when I'm going to countries like the Baltics, there is a pent-up spirit of entrepreneurialism. And now that there's free, everybody just kind of jumps for it. Exactly. And at the same time, I feel like, you don't throw all the the good of the previous system out. There's still some some positive things about your more socialistic times. From your point of view, what are the things that would be saved, much as you embrace capitalism and this new freedom? Are there any aspects of the old days that, that you would want to keep? Well, I think there are some. I would say the health care for the kids is free. And that's for all the kids in Estonia. And I think that's just a wonderful thing. The other thing is uh, moms, you know, having kids, they can stay at home for three years and have their jobs actually kept. And what it is, is half of the time you get a full pay. So that is just amazing. That was a policy during Soviet rule. I cannot at the time I was really a kid, but I know you could always stay home with the kids a longer time. So there were some things that Estonia has taken over from the past right. and it's keeping right now. And also tried to keep the education of, you know, free of charge as for the kids. This is some things that it seems like we are carrying over, and I really like that. All the universities now, you, you know, you have to start paying and all of that. But so that's a little bit of an adjustment. That's a little bit of an adjustment. Yeah. But I remember, you know, getting my education and university, and I didn't have to pay a penny for it. So I really appreciate it now. And you consider, even now, looking back, that was a good education for you. That was a very good education. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're focusing on Estonia. We have Neil Taylor on the line from London, and and Neil writes The Brat Guide to Estonia, and Annalie Avatar is in our studio. Annalie, you you were there in Tallinn when your country had the famous singing revolution. Yes. Did you take part in that? I did take part of that. I remember looking at this thinking, my goodness, little Estonia is breaking away from Mother Russia. That is true, and through the singing. Tell me about it. There was no fights. There was no war. We just just did our singing. There is an Estonian song festival grounds, and that's the same place where the song and dance festival takes place. Okay, now this is 1991, right? Yes. The Soviet Union is falling apart. It's falling apart. Was Estonia the first country to break away? I cannot. I believe we were the one of the first, one of the first ones to start that. This was that. big news, and you did yes. it musically. 
We did musically through the songs. People, I th- believe there was like 200,000 people on this Estonian song festival grounds. You could hardly breathe. You, you were squeezed by people around you. And all what it was, you could see the flags. You're all singing and waving your flags. Exactly. The people in the Kremlin must have been going crazy. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Of course, that the Estonian flag was banned for 40 exactly. years. Exactly. That was why it was so symbolic that mm-hmm. it could fly from 1989 onwards. So, Neil, give us your take on the singing revolution in, in Estonia winning its freedom. Well, one has to talk so positively about it. So many countries have literally fought for their freedom that one was so relieved after mm-hmm. all the bloodshed of the Second World War that this war, in a sense, was a totally peaceful one by singing by introducing business practices that they'd noticed in Finland, the Estonians could sort of edge towards independence and totally avoid bloodshed. That was the real joy of that time. Was there charismatic leadership on the part of that little nation? Oh, yes. Yes, I wouldn't want to mention particular names. Anneli might have different views on that, and of course the names are not known abroad. But who'd studied models elsewhere determined to work peacefully towards establishing independence in their country. Annalie, today in in the mind of an Estonian, who are the heroes uh, politically of the singing revolution? Are there any, or is it a people's thing only? Yes, it was a lot of the people's things, but there were a lot of leaders who actually uh, were brave to start it. Was it was dangerous for them it to It was very, up. very dangerous to do that. Oh, so right. there were people actually who took the stand, and we all followed. So basically, Estonia is a small country, and it's been under Swedes, then it was under Russians, then it was independent for a while, and then it had 50 years as part of the Soviet Union. Union, and then since 1991, it's free. And the big news, 2004, part of the European Union. When you join the European Union, you're either a net giver or a net receiver, meaning the poorer countries get money from the EU to bring them up to speed. I've heard that uh, in the old days, people would go from Helsinki on the boat for an hour and a half to Tallinn just to get their hair styled or to go to a spa because it was so much cheaper there. Since you write guidebooks every year, Neil, what, what has happened with the relative economy of Estonia? Estonia is certainly still cheaper than Finland. There's no doubt about that, and that is an appeal for people coming from Finland and also to tourists from many other countries. But the distinction is not as great as it was, say, 10 years ago. So one could say it offers good value nowadays, but isn't cheap, let's say it that way. So it's no longer a Finnish nightclub? No, 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 I'm glad to say it isn't. No, those days have gone. I remember those days. The tourists who come from Finland are culturally interested now. It's a much nicer Mm -hmm. type of tourist who's coming, the sort Mm -hmm. of tourist who would actually come from the United States or Britain, really. Probably more appreciated. Yes, yes, that's true. Very (laughs) nice. When we're talking about Estonia, we think about choral music. Choral music was used as a, a way to make a political stance uh, in the resistance against the USSR. And now a big part of the tourism is song festivals. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yes, there's the major song festival, which takes place in Tallinn every four or five years. But then through the summer, when you travel around the country, you'll find a lot of song festivals going on in all the small towns, on Sarima, and across the countryside as well. We must forget also the orchestral festivals, a lot of orchestral music, chamber music. I think one could say, really, the whole range of classical music is represented. There's even an organ festival each year in February. Do Estonians have a particular interest in classical music, choral music, Annalie? We do. Uh, We kind of grew up with it. And um, yes, Estonians do love to go to all the concerts that we have, and especially summertime is so wonderful.
Estonia is wide open for tourism now. Just to put it into perspective, it's a small country, uh, about 1.3 million people. It's the size of New Hampshire and Vermont combined. Uh, Fascinating to me, there's only 1 million Estonian speakers in the whole world. Getting to Estonia, generally people hop on a boat from Helsinki. There are fast boats going many times a day, zipping from Helsinki over to Tallinn in a couple hours. Neil, tell us uh, from a practicality point of view, getting there, visas, hotels, what challenges are there for travelers, or is it just like going to Denmark? It's just like going to Denmark. It's a very good parallel. The airport's a little smaller in Tallinn, but you can actually fly there from most major European cities. You can't fly yet directly from the U.S., but you can easily change in London, Copenhagen, Stockholm, or Helsinki, as you mentioned earlier. Use credit cards without any problem and no visas, so you just walk in. A lot of people, and I would encourage this, if you're going to Scandinavia and you want to spice it up, the single most exciting day would be a long day trip from Helsinki. You go over in the morning, you literally walk from the boat dock into the old town, and I just think you're you're surrounded by a delightful world, and your first thought is, I want to stay here longer than one day. I mean, you just can't believe how interesting it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your take on side-tripping from Scandinavia, Neil, into Estonia? Yes, but it would certainly be sensible to spend two or three days in Tallinn, and if you've got the time, then to go into the national parks. The former German manor houses have now been often converted into hotels, so they would be a tremendous contrast to staying in a smaller hotel in the old town or a bigger hotel in the new part of Tallinn. So I certainly would encourage people to move on from Tallinn, and the price difference is enormous. The countryside is so much cheaper, and of course for people coming from the U.S., it would be a very different experience staying in an 18th century manor house. I would imagine. Just to finish off on the practicalities, every time I've flown into the Baltics, I just change in Copenhagen, and it's just a quick flight, and the Baltic capitals line up just like every other Western European city on the departure board for airlines, so it's a a simple matter to fly there. And there is also an overnight boat from Stockholm, isn't there, Neil? There is, yes. So you can take that boat, the many boats from Helsinki, or these very regular flights from Copenhagen. Annalie, an interesting thing for me is the fact that in the Soviet times, Russian officers, when they retired, were given a chance to live where they wanted to live, and they chose to live in Estonia because that was probably one of the more comfortable corners of the Soviet Union. Yes. And then today, the the consequence of that is roughly 30% of your population is ethnic Russian, and they speak Russian, and they don't even want to speak Estonian, and it causes some challenges. Yes, I do agree with that. Um, There are really Russian families, and they put their kids to the schools, and they only learn everything in Russian. And I really don't know how they function in the society like that. And living in Estonia, not understanding is, you know, you've got to learn the language. But somehow, you know, they, they kind of keep together and they manage it. And that's something which always has um, brought up conflicts between Estonians and Russians because you're still living in Estonia. And in respects towards you know, the country, you want to learn the language. But it really goes back to the politics then when you're going into that area. So, you know, to get along, you don't want to really go into that very much. <laughs> so actually there is a sensitivity there. It's just we've had too much conflict in our past. Let's very not. much so. So it, they're just really sort of gets, ignoring yes. the problem. Oh, absolutely. Just, just ignoring the problem. They got 30% of your population yes. is not only Russians, but mm-hmm. Russian military families yes. who make a point not to learn a mm-hmm. single word of your language. And don't teach their children this Absolutely. language. Absolutely. You know, when you talk to them and get deep into the problem or into the situation, then they actually do wish that the Russians would come back. So that's kind of their 
Who wishes the Russians um, would come back? You know, the Russian people yeah. wishes that the Soviet Union or kind of the system would come back that supported oh, them at the time. Well, of course, the, yes. the retired military officers of the Soviet Union now, well, well the, the system that made them powerful is exactly. gone. Exactly. And, and they're nostalgic about exactly. that. Exactly. Nostalgic. Yes, that's what it is. Neil, what's your take on this whole Russian situation in Estonia? I would be a little bit more positive than Annalie. I've met many Russian speakers who are putting their children through Estonian kindergartens who realize that Russian times are past and that to get on, they must learn Estonian, must learn English, become citizens of the EU. And they're very positive about that. They say, well, how wonderful that with our Estonian passports, we can travel around Europe. Therefore, there really is the incentive to learn Estonian and be part of the local community there. And if they go back to Russia, they can see the dire poverty. You can literally see it over the river in Narva, which is the border town. Or if they do actually travel into Russia, you see all the squalor of the Russian countryside, which looks 19th century, really, not Mm. even 20th century. Many are very positive about what's happened in Estonia and um, feel it's a sort of privilege and I would say perhaps a sort of pleasure to be there, but um, a great advantage to be there. I would imagine that would be just the pragmatic thing. I mean, uh, you look at the relative progress Estonia has made compared to Russia, and those Russians, maybe they're just feeling, well, let's kind of bury our old Russian pride here and be thankful we're not stuck in that frustrating world. We're just on this side of the river. I think so, yes. And the younger the people, the more positive they are towards Estonia, because those who couldn't adapt, who had a fairly easy life in Soviet times with a reasonable salary and not working very much. Well, obviously now in Estonia, you have to work hard to do well as in any capitalist country, and some couldn't make that adjustment. That's true. It struck me as a fascinating um, and complicated issue, and I guess the only across-the-board good thing about this um, plantation of Russians is uh, wonderful Russian restaurants. Much cheaper than in Russia. In Tallinn, yeah. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking about Estonia. We have uh, Stephanie on the phone from Vancouver, Washington. Any thoughts or uh, comments for our discussion on Estonia? Um, Well, Estonia is near and dear to my heart just because my husband's from there and I've been able to go back three times now since 2004 and different parts of the year. And I just love Estonia, and I hope to be able to raise my kids so that they can um, have that same love for the country and pride for it that Estonians have. Now, when you go back to Estonia, uh, what is a highlight for you? Well, we normally stay very close to Tallinn and visit our favorite spots in the city. And then, of course, we'll head over to the islands. Um, Muhu, you don't hear too much about the little island of Muhu, but my husband's aunt lives there. And so we go visit there for a few days. It's still very, you know, rustic there. And and then we'll head over to Sarame and visit the castle there and just drive around. They've got a lovely coastline and nice little quaint hotels to stay in. Hmm. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's just absolutely gorgeous. A lot of greenery and beautiful blue skies. And I think the thing that surprised me most about Estonia is just that you see the city and stuff when you look at pictures, but there's a lot of farmland and just still a lot of land there. (laughs) Now, Neil, you wrote an actual guidebook to Sarame, is that right? Yes, I did, yes. And how would you characterize Sarame? Because this is one of the undiscovered wonders probably of Northern Europe. It is, 
yes. And a perverse advantage of the Soviet occupation is that nobody could travel there for a holiday. It was a sort of front line against NATO because it was out in the Baltic Sea and full of Soviet military and armaments and so on. So the houses the roads in many ways are much as they were in the 1930s so one goes there for a very sort of sentimental holiday as stephanie said they're the small villages the walks along the cliffs the castle which is still intact from 500 years ago and that is the real joy that it isn't a modern seaside resort it's an old-fashioned one and of course the hotels have been very modernized inside and they're spas there too Um, so you don't have to do without creature comforts, but uh, you feel you are in a rural community. Now, Annalie, what are your memories of Sarame? Just a beautiful, untouched island, Kurasara Castle. Um, there are Angla windmills, definitely worth the visit. visit. Yeah. And then, of course, the Kali meteorite crater, that's worth to take a look at, dates back to, huh. I would say, 2,000 years so this is some of the highlights, but just beautiful beaches. Yeah, just an absolute And not many people visit. there. It's very exactly. quiet. Very quiet, right. yes. Mm. Stephanie, thanks for your call. I think we've got to take a good look at Sarame. Thank you. Uh-huh. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today our focus is Estonia with the help of Neil Taylor, who is on the phone from London. And Neil writes The Brat Guide to Estonia, new edition out in 2009. Neil also writes The Brat Guide to Tallinn. And Annelie Avatar, an Estonian who moved to the United States after Estonia won its freedom and loves to go back, have joined us in the studio to discuss this fascinating country. Now, 90% of the tourists that go to Estonia, of course, go to Tallinn, the, the dominant city, uh, very well connected with uh, Helsinki, with the international airport and so on. And when you get to Tallinn, there's two towns. There's, what, the high town and the old town? Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil, explain just the basic lay of the land for a tourist and what are the highlights when you go to Tallinn. Well, the old town is where they must start. Five, six hundred years old. And fortunately, there was never a battle in the city itself. You mentioned earlier about all the different occupations that there's been over the centuries, but never a battle in Tallinn. There was bombing in 1944, but it didn't affect the old town too badly. It only destroyed one street, and there were 50, 60 other streets, I'm glad to say. So Mm. people suddenly have a 17th, 18th century architectural experience as they wander around it. The new museum of the occupation I found just fascinating, talking about the plight of the people from 1939 to 1991 when they were ruled by uh, Moscow, basically. I find all over Eastern Europe and the former Warsaw Pact countries and so on, there's enough time gone by where Grandpa's dead now and you can talk seriously about some of the horrible things about their time when local people were collaborating with the communists and uh, putting down their people. Annalie, have you been to the Museum of the Occupation? I have not had a chance um, to the, be there, but I kind of, you know, know what's that about I because bet. I've heard just so many stories uh, from my own grandparents and all of that. So uh, what really happened to the people, what horrible things really happened to the people. Because when you grew up, there was probably these big, scary, mean-spirited statues of Lenin and you're Stalin right, looking down right. on you when and you walked to school. And they are in school. the museum now. Fortunately, <laughs> they've been moved from the streets and they're in the museum. Put downstairs near the toilet, I believe. <laughs> oh, that's right, yes, yes. <laughs> Neil, what's your take on that museum? I just thought it was a fascinating thing. 
it's an excellent introduction to the political history of Estonia. I mean, obviously, most people from outside the country have no idea what happened there during the 20th century, and it brings it all to life. The tragic side, and then the ludicrous side, the bureaucratic side, and very nice films. I mean, horrendous ones one expects to see there, but ludicrous ones of the long speeches, of the parades, and so on, of people who took themselves terribly seriously, but nobody else did. What the ludicrous is, they just were bombastic, um, two-bit, totally, yes. wannabe megalomaniacs. Yes. What's your memory of that, Annelie, as well, you were a child I'm, in Estonia? Yeah, well, first, I'm so glad that there is a museum there to um, honor these people and actually to bring up the real truth because when we were growing up and at school and the history that they were teaching us, that was not true. So when we went home and talked about it, then the parents would tell us the real story. So the history books were all rewritten for the kids later. But even from my own memories, I remember my grandmother telling me that uh, when the Russians came to her village, um, she had to hide in the woods because they came in the middle of the night to arrest the people, put them on the trains, and the trains just took them to Siberia. But my grandmother's sisters, they did hide in the forest, but then for some reason they decided to go back to their house, and that's where they got them. So they ended up spending, I don't know exactly, was it 10 or 15 years in Siberia? My goodness. There are so many tragic stories that go back to that time. And thank goodness now these little countries like Estonia can remember these, exactly. These horrible things exactly. so, so they can learn from them. Neil, you write also about um, Latvia and uh, Lithuania. Do they have similar museums? In those? Uh, yes, they do. And it's very important that each country has such a museum to tell the young people what their parents and grandparents went through because it is totally incomprehensible to a 25-year-old who's grown up in a basically Western country to think that people just knocked on doors and tore out whoever was there and sent them away for 10 and 15 years. And these museums are crucial for young people to understand what the previous generation went through. Now, when we think of the grand architecture of Tallinn, does it go back to Hanseatic times at all? Yes. It's a very German city in that respect. People who've traveled in northern Germany will see many parallels in the red brick, the tall steeples, and it's a very Lutheran place, too. So um, there is a close link. And in a way, one could say almost that the Germans ruled Tallinn, whoever else was there. The Swedes and Tsarist Russians delegated everything to the Germans. And it was only the Soviets who actually wanted to rule from outside Tallinn, from Moscow, of course. Huh. Now, when we're traveling throughout Northern Europe, you hear this word Hanseatic a lot. And the way I understand it, and maybe you can uh, refine this, Neil, is that Back before there was a free trade zone like the European Union, there was the frustration for merchants of not having common weights and measures and any sort of efficient way to trade and have their commerce. So this League of Trading Cities got together and established the Hanseatic League, and they were designed to facilitate trade. And they were basically German trading centers run by German sort of workaholics with um, indigenous people doing a lot of the hard labor. These were the economic powerhouses of the Middle Ages in Northern Europe. You think of Tallinn, Riga, Bergen, Lübeck, Copenhagen, I suppose. Is that sort of it in a nutshell? Uh, that is it, yes. A powerful bond in the sense that 
they agreed amongst themselves as to how to trade, but not powerful in the sense that they interfered. So people could trade in a whole range of commodities, set their own prices and so on, set their own standards. But because there was this bond between them, they all traded very effectively. Faded away in Swedish times in the sort of 18th century. It was never suddenly dissolved or attacked or anything like that. And the architecture now is a bond. And what is lovely is, um, after all the divisions in Iron Curtain days, that these cities are getting closer again, partly through cruise companies and partly through trading. It's interesting when you look today as a sightseer at great cities, there's a money reason for the great architecture you see today, which is going back way back to Hanseatic times. You go to Riga, it's an incredible city because of its Hanseatic architecture, and Tallinn benefits from that as well. And quite a few other cities around the Baltic, one could rattle off names of sort of 2025, all of whom profited from that Hanseatic League link. Give me five or six. Oh, Gothenburg, Stockholm, Helsinki, Lübeck, Rostock... There you go. You passed your test. I'm speaking with <laughs> I'm speaking with Neil Taylor. He's the author of The Brat Guide to Estonia. And Annelie Avatar, who uh, was born and raised in Estonia, joins us in the studio. We're talking about Estonia. Tallinn is the big touristic draw. And when you go to Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, I noticed every day the city is inundated with small groups of tourists with uh, young tour guides holding up ping pong paddles that have numbers on them. And this is like the hordes of tourists that come through Tallinn. Uh, Neil, tell me about the cruise industry in Tallinn a little bit. It's very important. Most tours that go around the Baltic Sea do call into Tallinn. I just feel sorry for the tourists on the boats that they see so little. The companies work very hard to fit in as much as possible, but a lot of people feel frustrated that they only arrive at 8 in the morning and leave at 4, so will often come back under other auspices to Estonia a year or two later, and then they have the chance to spend three or four days in Tallinn and experience the countryside as well. I kept thinking self-imposed hostage crisis when I saw these poor people. <laughs> yes, you could describe it as that, very definitely, partly because, of course, Tallinn Old Town is small, so the streets do get cramped when several cruise boats are in at one and, time. And they I'm want... glad that some of the boats are now going to Saremaa. We were talking about Saremaa yeah. earlier, and there is a port there for cruise boats now, and I would certainly advise any of your listeners who are on Baltic cruises to make sure that the boat they're on stops at Saremaa. Of course, a cruise stop in Tallinn is far better than no stop at all in Tallinn. Oh, absolutely. You yes. know, there's no question yes. about that, but I've got to say, from the smug perspective of an independent traveler, when you're in Tallinn and you stay in a beautiful boutique hotel and you enjoy, uh, what, what was it, Grandma's Kitchen is one of the great restaurants? That's, that's right, one of the main Estonian restaurants there, yeah, yes. Yeah, a wonderful cuisine in a place like Grandma's Kitchen. And then you see these poor people coming in, herded together, and, and then taken through the main square to the main museum, and then probably taken shopping to buy some handmade sweaters and then herded back onto the boat. You just feel like those poor people, they could have done a lot better. Annalie, what's your take on that? Yeah, I do agree with that. There's just so much to see and do that, you know, just a day is not enough in Tallinn. So if you really have a chance, at least two or three days, you know, I would recommend that. Uh, 
Now, there's a huge change in hotels. In the old days, it was this Viru Hotel, right? Yes, that was the center and the only big hotel. You smile when I say that. Why do you smile? <laughs> because this was just a centerpiece of the town next to the old town. Everybody knew about it. A lot of Finns who came over, that's where they stayed. It was the one sort of 1950s ugly skyscraper that stuck out of the town like it fell out of a garbage exactly, can. Exactly, exactly. And you go into there, and if you ask a girl, what's your name, she'll say $200. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> so there's a lot going on with this Vero Hotel. So this is the classic, disgusting, corrupt, communist-style hotel yes, that, that probably had more so rooms true. in it than all the other rooms put together. I think so. Neil, what's the new uh, hotel scene? Um, there's a great range now. There are hotels like the Viru, another one's the Olympia, of course, which was built for the Olympic Games in 1980, which are good business class hotels with full facilities now, sort of swimming pools and spas in some cases, and then lots of boutique hotels in the old town as well, hotels which have 30, 40 rooms in them, so are suitable for small groups or for the large number of individual tourists who are now in Tallinn. A lot of guest houses, boutique guest houses, B&Bs. What I felt was there's just this pent-up entrepreneurial spirit, and everybody is just jumping for joy from a small business point of view now, and you walk down the streets, and there's a special Estonian kind of sense of style and sense of fun, and it's affordable. It's it's a great yes, alternative. Yes, certainly is this sense of style. There's very little tack in Old Town Town. Inevitably, there are few shops with what one might regard as tasteless souvenirs, but right. on the whole, style. they are... Well, the sweaters that you've mentioned, things made of the juniper wood that comes from Sarima. I went and to a one lot of glass in China as well. Neil, do you know this little place? I went to this cafe and I wanted it. It looked so charming. It was on a little dead end in sort of a ramshackle corner of town that was being gentrified. I wanted to sit down and every chair had a vest on it. And I, I thought, all the chairs are taken. And then I realized, oh, no, that's just the way they're decorating their chairs. Every chair had a vest. I think that was Old Master's Courtyard, probably. That's where it was because I stayed yes. in a B&B at the end of that courtyard. Oh, right, yes. Put it in your it's guidebook. One of, one of the nicest in Tallinn, certainly. <laughs> Very reasonable price, sort of quiet. <laughs> yeah, a wonderful man who runs it. He runs the B&B from his uh, jewelry shop right on that same courtyard. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you've stayed there. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't um, have recommended a better choice for an individual tourist with a sense of adventure. Oh, that's good. Neil and I actually are competitors when it comes to Tallinn because mm-hmm. I, I write a Scandinavia guidebook. And I don't know if you know, Neil, but I wrote a, a guidebook to what I call the five most livable cities of the former Soviet Union, the three Baltic capitals, St. Petersburg and Moscow, back in the early 90s. Oh, right. To, I must get hold of it. Just okay. to try to contribute to the, the beginning of uh, Western tourism in those newly free countries. And uh, I realized that uh, things were changing so fast and uh, sales were not huge. I had to either do the, the book well or I would be doing people a disservice by having it in print. And I left it up to specialists like you who really have an ongoing passion for the Baltics and so on to write your great guidebooks. But the one chapter I saved was my Tallinn chapter, which is, is part of the Scandinavia book, because I'm just adamant about anybody going to Scandinavia. If you get as far as Helsinki, you've got to get over to Tallinn. We've got um, Jeremy on the line from Folsom, California. Jeremy, thanks for your call. Taylor, Rick, and Annalene and Neil. And just listening to all of this is bringing so many memories back to me because I've been to Europe many times. But my very first experience in Europe was actually in 1995 and 1996. I went to Estonia. It's the first country I ever visited. Wow. We actually went with a church group. And... You know, we spent some time in Tallinn, and it's a great place, but the one thing I really enjoyed is getting outside of Tallinn. And we spent a lot of our time, and I'm sure uh, Annalita is probably familiar with this town in Tartu, which is a great university town. 
Mm-hmm. And my experience there is just being able to meet with like college kids, kids my age, and learn so much about Estonia and have so many experiences that I could not have in Tallinn because I actually got to interact with the culture. I spent time with uh, translators and learning a little bit of the language on how to count, like ooks and cocks and comb and uh, little phrases. Good. Hey, Jeremy, were you there with a, like a church choir? Our church actually had a contact that was a missionary spending time there. Okay. And so through our contact, our first year there, we sent 40 college kids over there. Oh, my goodness. Because I know yeah. a lot of um, church choirs travel around because the Estonians really appreciate choral music. Yeah, our work there was just to talk to people. That's all mm-hmm. we did. We didn't really have anything else planned. We just got to experience a lot of the culture. Well, let's talk about the religion there, uh, Jeremy, because uh, they had 50 years of communism where they're supposed to be atheistic, and I suppose some of the old people would hang on to their religion, but young Correct. people were probably raised thinking it was stupid. Historically, they've been Lutheran, right? Correct. But what my experience there and and actually talking to people is that a lot of people were either agnostic or atheist. However, the good thing is, is just from my experience, they're very, especially the younger ones, were very intellectual, very much thinking. And you went there with your church as missionaries to teach them about the Bible and so on? Well, just to talk to people um, and just to see what their experiences were. And and if conversations led to that, sure, absolutely. But I I think the best thing about that was just building relationships, just to see where people were, especially this being a new door that opened for us, just getting to know the people and, and a country and a history and a culture and what they were about and how they thought and how they lived and what they believed, especially just coming out of communism. Was there a spiritual hunger there after uh, 50 years of communist uh, sort of top-down enforcement of atheism? I would say for some people, I think the hunger would probably more of an intellectual curiosity. Hmm. There are many places there where uh, faith, um, like all places in the world, are thriving. But I think, especially in my experience in a college town, they're very much interested in science. Right. Probably like Scandinavians in general today. Correct. I noticed uh, just some of the things you've already been talking about is just how much, even back then, um, well, especially back then, there was tension between Russians and Estonians. Well, you know And it. how uh, Russians basically had their own place, uh, their side of town, or places where they lived, and they just yeah. stayed away from each other. Um, how Estonians love to refer to the, uh, the Finnish people as the four-legged dogs. Because alcohol was, I believe, cheap there, they would always come over from Finland and just get totally drunk. And then the four-legged dog. So the image of the Estonians is a Finn who's just overdosed on cheap alcohol. Exactly. And that's how they referred to a lot of them. And Anneli, uh, yes, you yes, remember I agree. that? We, we called them deer or deers. <laughs> deers. <laughs> the fits are deers in your country because they're on four yeah. legs. Yeah. That's funny. Absolutely. <laughs> Jeremy, I want to get Annalise's take before we get yeah, further on I, uh, religion during the uh, communist time. Yeah, I have a little bit of the kind of an explanation during that one why the young people are not so much into religion. They're more intellectual, more interested in science and all of that. Now, there was a reason when I was growing up and I remember going to school, the religion was a big no-no. The history teacher made sure at high school that we would not go to any church. And in order for you to be able to accept it to any university, you did not want to be seen at church. Or if you did, your parents could lose their jobs. So we're raised without the religion, but we're raised with good values. So when you really compare it to the Bible, the values were there how we're raised, but it was not called religion because it was just the fear. 
They really couldn't control the morals, right. but they could control that we would not go to church. Yeah. So, so that, but those Christian morals then survived even without going to church. Exactly, they did survive. And then 1991, all of a sudden, it's okay to go to church. Did people were they so comfortable not going to church that there was not a big resurgence of church going, or did everybody go back to church? They didn't go back to church. Did be, not because they grew up without it. Right. They never used to go there. So even nowadays, sometimes when you get into these topics, you know they they are not so sure. So not but comfortable, they, not talking, comfortable about talking about God and you know all these values. So but it's they, a they, private thing. It's kind of a private thing. So, Jeremy, does that uh, measure with your experience? Yeah, it really does. Especially coming from an outside perspective, that kind of sounds exactly like my impression of what I gathered of Estonians. Very private. Some people, especially the younger kids, um, open to talking about it intellectually curious, but still um, God was not something that's mm-hmm. very prevalent, talked about. My friends in Bulgaria, when they were kids, there was one Western rock concert a year, and it happened to coincide with the Easter Mass. So the kids had to choose, go to Mass or go to the one rock concert that they were legal to go to. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, thanks for your call and your insight into Estonia. Okay, no problem, Rick. Happy travels. You too. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Estonia. We got Neil Taylor on the line from London. Neil writes the Brat Guide to Estonia, new edition out in 2009. And Annalie Avator joins us right here in our studio. Joyce from Plano, Texas emailed us. And uh, Joyce will be touring the Baltic states soon and saw a newspaper article about one of Estonia's song festivals. Neil, what should people plan for if they want to enjoy the famous choral music of Estonia? They've got to book well ahead because they're not many hotels in the towns around Estonia or be reconciled to quite a journey, perhaps traveling for 50 miles, being part of the festivities in the evening and then going back to the hotel later in the evening. Are you likely to stumble into some choral music just in the churches or if you go to the tourist office? My experience is you go to the tourist office in Tallinn, there's all sorts of musical events, quite affordable, even free, for different groups that just love to share their music. Yes, and around the country, um, not yeah. only in Tallinn. Right. Yes, that's a regular joy wherever one is in Estonia. When I think of choral music, the neighboring country, uh, Latvia, Riga, is just famous for its choirs, and men are dressed up in their black and white uh, outfits, just singing like we would have barbershop quartets in, in a wild yes, west town. Yes, in a more formal style in Riga, that's true. And now, let's just talk for a minute about the three Baltic states. I love to try to compare cultures. We've got Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Anna Lee, if you're joking with your Estonian friends or if you have some Latvian friends over, mm. what are the characteristics that, of course, are, are not, not fair, but what are the jokes and the characteristics comparing the three Baltic states? Well, you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they're all the Baltics, but we are kind of a little bit different. I, I honestly, oh God, I don't even have any Latvian or Lithuanian friends. Is that right? Yes. Lithuanians seem quite a bit different to me. They seem more uh, Polish, more rural. Yeah. And Lithuanians and Estonians seem more maritime. Very much so. I mean, the Lithuanians feel pulled southwards in Europe. I mean, they're a Catholic country, so they're looking to Spain and to Italy. Latvia and Estonia are Lutheran countries, so they're looking across to Finland, as we've already discussed, and to Germany and to Sweden. Well, there you go. Now, if the Finns are called deers or the uh, four-legged dogs when they come to Tallinn, is there any jokes? Or, uh, how do you characterize different Baltic states? Are there any fun that way? The Irish and the Welsh and the Scottish always have their fun. I suppose they each look down on each other. 
um, they probably tell the same sort of jokes about each other in the way that the French do about the Belgians, or the same sort of racist jokes that the English tell about the Irish. Okay, I so think in America, people tell about the Poles. So the Polish jokes would be, in any country you're not, in the Baltics. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's right, yes. Emily? Yes, I agree on that. Okay, so we've established they're all stupid. No, they're all smarter. <laughs> they're all smart. <laughs> Let's talk about food. To me, it's just this home cooking in grandma's kitchen when you find these wonderful restaurants in Tallinn. And then there's also a lot of kitschy, medieval kind of experiences. Neil, your best advice for enjoying Estonian cuisine? Uh, make sure you go to a restaurant which knows how to cook potatoes. There's so many ways the Estonians cook potatoes. and It's not just a filler there. Uh, herbs are with them, spices. They can be roasted. They can be mashed add a lot of dairy products to them, make sure it's a major part of the meal. Nice. Now, Annalie, when you go home to Estonia, what's the first meal you want to have in a restaurant? Well, um, I like my meat and potatoes, the typical peasant food. That's how they call it, meat, potatoes, and gravy. And we also like our pickled herring, uh, pickles, sauerkraut, and, of course, for Christmas, um, the traditional food would be blood sausage, pickled pumpkin, and um, sauerkraut. Sauerkraut. Nice. Beer, mead, wine. What are the alcoholic drinks? Beer. Beer, yeah. Very definitely beer. Now, it's fascinating to me that a million people on this planet only speak Estonian. It's a tiny language group, but people love their language. Annalie, can you teach us just a little bit of Estonian? I would, I'd love to hear the language. Well, um, I could say... Mulla um, väga I think I liked what you said, but Did can you, you translate? I, th- I think what I said is I, I am very honored to be at Rick Steve's radio show. I think he's a great tour guide and uh, promotes Estonia very well to the world. Say that one more time in Estonian. <laughs> Neil, when you write a guidebook, one of the joys is deciding what photograph to put on the cover. If you could have any photograph to inspire people to enjoy sort of the essence in one snap of Estonia, what would you put on the cover of your next guidebook to that I think it country? would be the sunset, because people think of Estonia as a sort of dark, somber place, and I want them to think of it as a lively, modern, jolly place, and a slow, lingering sunset perhaps summarizes that better than anything else. Nice. The people who embrace life and enjoy life. Absolutely, yes. And Annalie, if you were to write a journal and uh, you just uh, wanted to capture the essence of your time in Estonia, what photograph would you put on the cover? I would put a photograph of the woman in a national costume, a national dress, that really reflects our tradition, and it's really carried on and you're going to see that this summer at our dance and song festival. So that would be my image. So a proud little country of 1.3 million people, now officially part of the European Union, in a few years going to have the euro, still yes. proudly wearing its traditional outfits and uh, singing its traditional hymns. Sounds, yes, absolutely. It's a beautiful opportunity to learn about Estonia, to be with you, Annalie, to, to see your love of your culture. And Neil for a man who's dedicated so many years to uh, sharing Estonia with Western travelers. It's just a, it's been a great hour. Neil, how would you bid me farewell in Estonian? 
Nagamist, I think, if Annalie agrees with my pronunciation. Yes, you're very close. Nagamist. It's just Nagamist, that sorry. A with the two dots. Oh, the two dots, yes. Let's hear Annalie. Annalie, tell us goodbye in Estonian. Nagamist. Nagamist. And, and, and tell me thank you for listening. Tänan kuulamast. You're welcome. Rick Steves spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for Scandinavia and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.